Welcome to The Mend, a podcast for survivors and victims of crime sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I am Anna Nasset and I am your host for this bi-monthly podcasting show. Today on the show, we have part two with Keisha Rahm back here to talk about systematic oppression, white privilege, and racism in our state and country. Thank you so much for joining me again for part two. Thanks for having me back, Anna. Um, because one just wasn't enough. <laughs> it is a big topic, big set it's of topics. Big topic. Um, so where we left off, we were kind of just we were talking about anger um, that that people of color feel for continuously having to be asked questions, be you know the spokesperson for everything, and so we we're talking about that, and we started to get a little bit into policing. And so I'd like to start this episode off by segueing into law enforcement, um, the abuse of power and mistrust that we see and need to reform a system that was set up for cops to protect me. I mean, quite frankly, I have, I love all the cops I've worked with over the years because we have a system that was set up to protect me. And something like for me that's really important is that we address how it was not set up for everyone. Mm-hmm. And can you share with us how you see historically and now what we have going on in policing and what we need to be working forward to in regards to police reform, defunding, restructuring, all everything? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so one thing that I always appreciated about police chief Mike Sherling, um, who's now the head of um, public safety in the state, Um, but when he was Burlington's police chief, he would start almost every meeting that I was present for, and especially ones about um, addressing bias in policing by saying, I wanna acknowledge that the history of law enforcement agencies in this country is one of protecting white wealth, um, you know, white white bodies, and really systematically oppressing um, people of color, anyone who would rise up against their employer you know, anybody who would rise up and try to change their community in a way that benefited people of color or got them the resources that they need. Um, You know, and then you had a lot of folks who went back and forth from Ku Klux Klan, you know, at night to policing during the day, had no repercussions for the terror that they were raining down on black communities and communities of color. And some of the only times in history that our military has been used against Americans on our soil um, were were times like you know the uh, uh, the rising up of miners who were both black and white in Kentucky and West Virginia who were together demanding better working conditions and that was incredibly frightening for uh, you know the status quo and for those in power to have poor white folks and poor black folks know that their struggle was the same so we see actually a really intentional history of dismantling that wealth or of creating, um, you know, tension between poor white folks and poor black folks in order to maintain the status quo that we have. Um, Police have been really complicit in that. And in fact, the FBI and others have been investigating the resurgence of white nationalism present in our police departments. You know, that's not to say that I think there are some real reasons that police need our special attention and support, just like any job where you're being fatigued by how much trauma you're experiencing, fatigued by 
um, you know, the sort of combat mentality that you have, that we talk about combat fatigue for folks in the military, we talk about trauma fatigue for people in social work, et cetera. But when you really sort of combine those two in policing, where you feel like there's violence coming your way and you're seeing friends of yours, you know, from high school or, or the community die of an opioid overdose or um, experience domestic violence, you know, you start to become hardened. And mm -hmm. so there's this whole continuum of people who I think are really shouldn't be police officers who might have reasons that they want that power and control um, to folks who, you know, start out really wanting to do the right thing as police officers and, and become traumatized by their experience. And all of this to me leads to, you know, reimagining what public safety looks like in the 21st century and reimagining how we spend our resources. Frankly, having traveled to other countries where police just are not used the same way, don't have the same history, things look really different, right? I mean, all of us from all of our movements have been talking about the opioid crisis, for example. And our solution in the US is to crack down, crack down on a particularly black and brown people who we identify as drug dealers. You know, the war on drugs was largely um, something that led to, you know, millions of black men going to jail to, to the point that, you know, we, they have rates of incarceration that are far above any developed country and most underdeveloped countries. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have a, a policing system looks really different and doesn't really take care of our public health issues. If you look at a place like Portugal, you know, when they look at drug enforcement, 90% of that money goes to social workers and medical care and social services that treat that person. And about 10% goes to, you know, reducing the supply. But you can't really focus on, you know, just attacking people on the supply side. It just makes it more expensive, right? Mm -hmm. So when we look at, you know, about 5% of what policing involves is investigating very serious violent crimes like rape and murder. And a vast majority of what they're doing now you know, kind of makes money for their law enforcement agency and gets them easy wins, which is drug enforcement. And, mm -hmm. you know, just locking people up, just interrupting the supply chain for a moment actually makes those products more valuable and doesn't make us any safer. Um, and so, yes. you know, we've had this very long experiment in policing that has not made us safer in many ways. Um, and yet, you know, at the same time, we've had really, um, we've, we've attacked, you know, what ur urban plights with a lot of different prongs and you know creating a community garden and better safer housing for people is probably just as effective at reducing crime you know in inner city neighborhoods as is having more police on patrol um but you know the way that we've put a lot of police officers in schools the way that arrest might happen for kids in elementary school particularly black kids and kids with disabilities um you know it's something that we have to really question are we any safer or better off now and I'm glad to see a majority of Americans starting to question that in this moment. Awesome, thank you. That's a good stump yeah. speech right there. <laughs> if we don't, if you're tuning into this episode for the first time, um, this is um, Kesha is running for state senate in Chittenden County, and I know I would really, really value her leadership um, in our state on you know re police reform and so many other issues and i just think that you've got such a great voice so thank you um what sticking with the police reform in our last episode you you mentioned that you were arrested by the police when you were 13 years old mm. um would you feel comfortable sharing a little bit more about that story i would i would and in fact i you know i had not talked about it publicly very often until we were doing 
um, a, a racial bias in policing bill in the legislature. And a lot of folks, um, well-meaning, you know, folks in the legislature said, I don't understand why we would collect race information. You know, don't we want to avoid bringing up race? And it's like, you know, <laughs> for those of us who've had the experience of feeling like we're being treated differently by law enforcement because of what we look like and the color of our skin, um, we're really curious what race they think we are, right? And that really related to my early traumatic experience with being arrested and detained. Um, I was 13 years old. Uh, I was with two friends of mine, one who is Native American and Black, and one who is Thai and Vietnamese. Um, and we were half a block from my friend's house. We were teenagers, and my friend had, you know, I, I'm going to make light of this because I wanted it to be a lighthearted night. It started out that way, but she really wanted pimple cream. She got a really big pimple right next to her nose, and we had to go to the grocery store and get her some cream. It's and a teenage emergency. It was a teenage emergency on a school night. Yes. We her house to get to school early. We have to go to the grocery store. You know, it was, it was, there is such thing as a teenage curfew or a young person curfew in LA um, at 9 p.m. Never heard of it until that night. Never seen it, you know, brought up with any of my white friends who frankly did, you know, some, some worse things. Um, and yet, you know, that night we went, we trudged out of the house at about eight o'clock. We went to get her her cream and on our way back with a bag in our hand from the grocery store, um, we were on a corner where we could see her house, a, a busy intersection in LA. And two police officers pulled over and simply asked, are you Mexican? And when we kind of muddled through our answers and didn't know what that meant or why they would ask us that, they, we said no eventually. And you know, they said, are you sure? Are you sure you're not Mexican? Um, yeah, we're pretty sure, you know, so um, they said, anyway, do you know what time it is? And it was like 845 and none of us had watches and it was kind of before the days of smartphones. So, um, you know, I don't remember, we just didn't have the time, but we thought it was like 845 PM. Well, we're taking you to the station as we're pleading and saying, talk to her mother. We're half a block away. We went to get pimple cream, my goodness. Um, and instead, you know, they drove us about 45 minutes away to their uh, police headquarters um, handcuffed us first to a wooden bench in the hallway um, where the sergeant came out and we thought maybe he'll be on our side, you know, where here it is getting to 10 o'clock at night and we did nothing wrong. And um, instead, you know, he he's yelled in our faces um, while we were handcuffed to a wooden bench. Um, eventually, as it got later, they handcuffed us to office chairs um, while they were filling out the paperwork and took a real good long time filling out the paperwork. And it was a school night, it was getting past midnight. And an officer came over who said in a very friendly way, um, hey, you know, don't you think it's a little late to have these young women here on a school night? And we thought, wow, like somebody's gonna come redeem police officers in our eyes at 13 years old and, and make us realize that there's good and bad officers and that, you know, they just had to know the situation and that we were, we needed our, our parents called and they hadn't called our parents yet. And that person would help us. Um, and the two officers <coughs> detaining us said, bless you. Um, you know, the, the two officers detaining us said, no, it's fine. It's fine. We're getting overtime for this. Um, and that officer who came over and questioned what was going on kind of let out a half-hearted chuckle and walked away. Um, and I just remember feeling like, okay, this whole place is not meant to serve me, not meant to keep me safe, not meant to straighten me out on any path, you know, that, that um, you know, helps me feel like a more, uh, like a, a young person who's, who's like sort of 
needs to be, um, you know, a lot of people I think would say, oh, well, sometimes you need to be scared by the police to kind of do the right thing. That's not what happens with a lot of brown and black kids. Um, you know, you really get the message that someone else has control over your life and, you know, can take your freedom away at any moment for really inane reasons. Um, and I just remember that night they waited till about 1 or 2 a.m. and called our parents who were worried sick about us and had no idea where we were. We said we were going to the store. Um, and hours later, I can't even, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, just the fear that you put in the hearts of, of parents. Um, most white people, I realize, can't imagine that that's what the police would do to their kids who went to the store half a block away from their house. Um, would make them, would make, would fill them with terror that their kids are less safe and they're somewhere that, you know, is, is a scarier place for them. Um, so, and I remember, you know, my two friends, their, their moms came and were very apologetic and, you know, had like, we taught our kids to stay away from the police and not do anything bad and we're really sorry. And I'm sitting there thinking like, this is an outrage. And my father came to get me and my father, you know, an Indian man who came over to go to college and heard, not only go back to Mexico, a bunch from, you know, people in the streets of Los Angeles, but was pulled over, you know, very frequently by the Los Angeles Police Department from his college years on to, you know, having us as, as young kids in the car, you know, are these stolen license plates? Are these stolen tires? Is this a stolen vehicle? Um, so he gave us a really deep mistrust of the police. And I just remember, I thought, I don't know what the difference will be tonight if my white mother comes to pick me up or my brown father. He was the one who came to get me and um, just screamed at the police officers. And I felt like slight vindication, but also like he might end up arrested too. And we're both going to spend the night here um, yeah. because that rage exists for so many black and brown people in the U.S. That rage, that feeling of like, you know, how dare you? How dare you call yourselves people who are here to protect and serve? And I guess my big takeaway for you know, white listeners is that almost every person of color you've ever met has an experience like this with the police if they've grown up in this country. You know, it, it took me a long time to realize that there were people who thought the police did add value to their lives, that the police you know, made them feel safer. I, 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 I just grew up not knowing what that felt like from my father's experience to my experience. Um, I think I, I, I said this on social media, but you know, after that experience, I'm, it was almost 10 years later when I was lost in Washington, D.C., that I, I saw a police officer and went over to him and, and asked him for directions and was shaking and just thought, um, I was so scared to approach a police officer for anything, let alone yeah. I was lost. And, you know, so what some people think of as their arbiter of public safety, other people feel like are the scariest people they can encounter on the streets. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And I think it is a really important story for white listeners to, to hear. I mean, yeah, I, I don't have children, but the whole time I'm thinking like, I, I couldn't even imagine if that was my child, like not knowing where they are and fearing the worst and then finding out that they're at a police station being mm -hmm. harassed. Um, it's just, and you're right. Like, I think that. I, I recently was driving to Penn State from here in Vermont to Penn State. I was speaking there and it's an eight hour drive, right? Yeah. So I drove through Vermont, New York and Pennsylvania. And here in Vermont, like I noticed like pretty quickly into my drive, like somebody was pulled over and I looked who was pulled over by the police and it was a man of color. Mm -hmm. And I kept driving along and that day I probably saw about eight people pulled over in that eight hour time period. Every single one of them was a person of color. 
every single one. And I just, you know, could cruise down the road safely. And like, that was just this moment of like, I, I don't, yeah, I will never fully understand and how, how you, how you exist in the struggles and the pain. Yeah. You know, and I, and I just, I watched it in my own family. My mother prides herself in never having gotten a ticket. You know, she's this, she's this small, kind, you know, white lady. She, but she drove a lot of beat up cars, even as like, she was low income for a while as a single mom raising us. And, you know, she, she, she had some pretty, pretty beat up cars, but, you know, she could talk her way out of a ticket when they got to the window and saw who she was. And, you know, she, she kind of never understood what happened when I got arrested that night. And I think most people know, if they know me at all, they know that I'm like, I can explain anything. And I use my words to, you know, change the path forward and to inspire people. And we had to miss a whole day of school to go to court for that curfew violation. Um, you know, we got to court, I could barely say my name, I could, I I didn't get my birthday right, I could barely speak, I was so scared, I was so overcome with emotion, I had no idea what it, what would happen to me for doing what I felt like was not a crime, Um, and, uh, you know, I remember the judge sort of asking, like, why, why were you arrested for this, like, I, I, this seems bizarre, you know, and I, it was Santa Monica, California, I couldn't answer him, I don't know why I was arrested, you know, I could barely even speak. And, um, you know, he threw the whole case out, but we had to miss a day of school. We could barely, you know, function. We were so frightened of what was going to happen to us. It, it cost us probably academically that, that semester in high school. And I was just filled with so much anger afterwards. I could have become a different person. You know, I could have not seen a way to turn this into something positive in any way, but just think, you know, society's already written me off. They already believe I'm a criminal. So what's the point in doing any good? Um, right. And that really is the school to prison pipeline is if you're treated like a criminal, you know, in your school um, and in your community, you think, yeah, by the time you're 18, why not? They don't believe I'm capable of anything else. And so, you know, that's really, um, I think what uh, a choice that that I had, I had the privilege to have a family who could say, what did you learn from this? I had teachers who held me through that moment, who helped me write essays about it and try and, you know, complain to the um, police department, which was futile. I mean, never heard a thing back, um, you know, but I was still able to say, I can turn this into having a voice in the future and being a voice for others. Whereas a lot of other folks understandably might've said, this is over. I owe nothing to society because, you know, they've never given me the support that I need. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you chose the path you did. And I know that we are so much better for it. Um, And it's, you know, I mean, with anything, it's like we look back on these really challenging moments and they are the one that has defined us to do these, these good in the future. But at the same time, we shouldn't have had to go through that horrible moment. Exactly. I, I just, I look forward to a day in this country where, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, my immigrant family, they were harassed by the police. They went through this trauma and it's like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm glad we can relate on that level, but can we break that cycle? You know, can we stop making that the American experience to sort of traumatize low-income people and people of color and new, Absolutely. new immigrants? Like, how do we how do we not have that be, you know, a big part of what the American experience is? Yeah, well, and that's kind of leads me into my next thing of like, how do we work to change our system? Um, like our system isn't just broken, it was built this way. Like exactly. it's 
nation, its laws are all built on putting black, indigenous, and people of color down so that white people can be on top. Like, right. what? how do you envision the future and what work should we be doing? Yeah, well, I and I really want to give credit to people like former rep Kaya Morris and Tabitha Moore of the NAACP and others. Um, you know, one of their efforts that has, I think, really started to show up and transform our system is um, the Coalition for Ethnic Studies in Schools and trying to change whose story is told in our school systems. Um, that work can start to happen at a very young age. You know, with preschool age kids, you can start to teach them about the people who stewarded the land before we were here, the, the Abenaki people. You can teach them about, you know, how to celebrate difference rather than be afraid to talk about it. Um, and I think that's really important work. I mean, I, you know, I was talking to the third graders um, that my first grade teacher is now teaching and she asked, you know, hey, would you talk to my kids? It's such a hard time for them in LA with the riots. And at the same time, she said, you know, some of the kids, their parents haven't told them that there's riots or that there's racial unrest or anything about this. And, you know, if you make these subjects taboo, then first of all, kids, they want to talk about them in unhealthy ways, right? They start to use the N-word or make fun of the situation or, you know, parrot what they hear on TV without really thinking about it. And that can be really harmful to their friends, even if they're people that they care about, people of color. Um, and then people of color really get traumatized in school and in fact, don't feel like the curriculum supports their viewpoint, even though we know that some of these textbooks, you know, are really, really one-sided and narrow, narrow in their perspective. So changing, teaching about eugenics, teaching about, you know, the history of the Buffalo soldiers in Vermont and, you know, the history of, um, of slavery that even existed here, taking kids to the Ropey Museum and seeing the last stop on the Underground Railroad. These are all ways I think that we start to change the culture in a bigger sense. Um, you know, and then at the same, I have a five point racial justice platform, things that we've been working on for years. Um, and we now have bigger coalitions built around, but certainly, I mean, I remember years ago, I tried to introduce legislation um, to get independent investigations into use of force cases that resulted in a death with the police. And at the time, you know, the police union was very strong. The police lobby is really strong. And I was shut down pretty soundly, you know, there wasn't a big coalition. There wasn't the NAACP didn't have the same influence, didn't have, wasn't as organized then. And I really felt kind of alone, you know, in trying to address criminal justice issues. And in fact, the goalposts keep moving. We know that there's huge disparities in Vermont, but we keep hearing, oh, we need more quantitative data, then we need more qualitative data, then we need a new study, then we need a new commission. We really need change, you know, and it's, we really need law enforcement to understand that if they don't have people's trust, um, they, they don't have an effective agency. Um, mm -hmm. So I think they're finally starting to see and understand that with some of the statements with action behind them. And then I think there's just a whole, when you look at the pandemic, when you look at a whole host of, you know, housing issues or um, access issues, then you really, you constantly want to be surprised but aren't by patterns that people of color are getting left behind. Information isn't in other languages. Systemically, we continue to leave behind new Americans, people of color, people with disabilities, low-income folks. And there's just so much intersectionality there. I can't help but always be asking, you know, who are we missing? Where are we not putting resources where there's real distress? Um, and so, you know, people can visit my website, K-E-S-H-A-R-A-M.com, K-E-S-H-A-R-A-M.com, and see more about um, our racial justice platform. But, you know, Vermont's exceptionalism, I think, has been the issue for a long time. We're 
so great and we have so much equity, we have great schools, so we couldn't possibly be having these problems. Well, first, we are having these problems. You know, there are people who are certainly left behind, um, especially mm -hmm. new Americans in our schools. When you look at judicial um, punishments in schools, you know, it's, very, it's far and away kids of color and kids with disabilities who are being punished in schools. It translates into our prison pipelines. And even if these were issues we weren't quite having yet, they're coming, you know, unless we as a state, a very small welcoming state can wrap our arms around these issues, we're going to have the same problems as Connecticut and Massachusetts and, and a lot of places, particularly in Southern New England that have diversified more recently and are grappling with, you know, the, the othering that happens to people in the aftermath of that. We have the opportunity to do better in Vermont and I, I hope we will. Um, it also starts with representation and I'm, you know, it, it, it is a huge responsibility and one that I don't relish to be the only woman of color running for office this year um, at the state level. So, you know, I'm constantly seeking out other people to share different life experiences and bring those to the table at the local and state level. Um, so if anybody wants to run for office, you can always reach out to me. I would be <laughs> really happy not to be the only woman of color in the Senate, um, you know, or in the legislature this year. Absolutely. And, you know, always know that we're here to support you too. And if there's any way I can, you know, ever lessen the burden for you, please let me know and just support you and cheerlead for you and all of those things, because it is an, it's a, it's a huge role. And like you said, you don't relish it, um, but you're doing it. And like, that's carrying a lot. So I just want to say that I see that and so much respect. Um, <laughs> we, yes. we, we have a, you know, as, as I sometimes say to folks, particularly women of color, we can't afford not to speak up. You know, there are times when we think, is anybody else going to say anything? Do I have to be the one to say it again? And we do, you know, we just, yeah. we, the stakes are too high for the young people that are coming after us. You know, we know the same thing is true for, for young women, period. You know, that if we don't change a little bit more now, then they'll still feel that they're hitting walls and ceilings and being boxed in. And, you know, as a woman of color, we just simply can't afford not to say something and to make things better for the next generation. Absolutely. I mean, and for me, just as a woman, it's like, you know, I understand like it is hard. Like there are times where I'm like, I do not want to say anything. I want to go watch my TV shows. I don't <laughs> want to talk about it. Yeah. And, but yeah, if we don't, who else will? And we have to, because we have to speak up so that, it's better for the other generations and that they have, they're not afraid to speak up exactly. and raise their voice. Right. So, yeah. And they see that there's different ways to be, you know, not, not every person of color right now has to be taking to the streets, you know, yelling into a megaphone. Um, they don't all, every, not everyone has to be posting on social media to, to be making a difference. You know, raising your kids safely is important. Um, you know, not, uh, feeling the need to educate other people is a radical act of self-care right now, you know? So, so everybody's doing what they can. And I think the more that, especially white folks can understand, like there's no one way to be a person of color. There's no one perspective to have on this, but also not to tokenize and say, well, my black friend said not to post the video and my black friend said this was harmful. Well, you know, make sure you have lots of perspectives. Don't put that onus on one person in your life and have black friends, have friends of color, have meaningful relationships with people um, where you're really curious about their life experience and not sort of looking for ways to challenge their worldview. 
Um, yeah. Listen right now, I think is, is my message to folks who are wondering what to do. Yeah. And that was my kind of my next two question was like, what would you say to, to white people right now? And, you know, for me, it is, I just try and deeply listen and, yeah. and luckily I have platforms to amplify as well. Um, so it's like, you know what, just that's what I've chosen to do. But yeah, if there's anything else that you would like to say specifically to white people right now, um, yeah, like I said, I hate asking that question because it's like it's not your responsibility to tell us what to do. Right, but right. I really appreciate you engaging in that. Yeah, and and you know when I right now what I'm doing on a systems change level I think is related to what everyone can do. Um, you know, which is really think deeply about what they're willing to give up. You know, what space needs to be created for others, and um, often you're not really ultimately at the end of the day having to give something up. The pie can get bigger. You know. But a lot of people, when they start to engage deeply in work that might involve them learning more, stepping back, letting other people take a leadership role, that's when they start to get a little worried. What does this mean for me? Does this mean I lose some edge and, and power that I had? So people have to be willing to take risks. Um, I think it's also important right now because we're, we're seeing this moment of racial unrest coming on the heels of and the continued experience of a pandemic. You know, people have lost significant income, they've lost resources, they're stretched very thin, they're trying to survive on so many fronts. If you are really seeking, you know, um, the support of a person of color to make a difference in your, in your workspace, in your um, board, etc., compensate them. And if they're saying, hey, I want to reach out to other people and get their voice, set some money aside to compensate those folks too. I, I have a grant right now with um, some funding from High Meadows uh, Fund and the Vermont Community Foundation and the Vermont Department of Health, I'm very grateful for to understand, you know, the experience of digitally underserved communities in the pandemic right now. People yes. might speak a different language, not have great internet access, all of those things. When, if we reach them on the phone or WhatsApp or whatever it is to talk to them about their experience, we're paying them. You know, we're paying them for their time um, because having the time to tell people how you're doing to try and make the, the situation a little better next time we're in an emergency or disaster. Um, that's really valuable information and people deserve to be paid for their expertise right now. So, you know, if you're gonna engage in this work, be willing to be incredibly curious, be willing to risk things and be willing to put some resources behind it to honor that people, you know, have really uh, been set back. <clears throat> Absolutely. I think those are all great action steps that we can do and, yeah, and I, I love what you brought up about paying people. It's, you know, I mean, for me, that's been the other thing is donate where you can. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I've chosen to donate to campaigns of women of color because that's important. <laughs> it's like, how can we support? Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not about losing anything or missing out on anything. It's like, you know, during this time now, especially where it's like, we're not going out to eat. Right. So, you know, what, like, you know, taking those resources that maybe you would spend on this other thing and putting it over here. Mm -hmm. um, the pie yeah. can always get bigger, but the yes. more we feel like it's scarce, the more we kind of restrain it's, uh, you know, how many people can feed and how much we can do. And that scarcity mentality, you know, will keep setting us back, especially in big economic crises where we become more tribal or just think I need to get back in the front of the line. Um, and unfortunately, Absolutely. a lot of the federal resources have done that, you know, made people feel like, I don't care if the information's in another language, I'm going to get mine, you know, before it runs out. And uh, yeah, 
I hate for us to be in that position right now. Absolutely. Um, to kind of shift as we're starting to wind down a little bit, but like what words or actions do you want to say to people of color, indigenous people, black people right mm. now? Wow, that's such a thank you for that. Um, you know, one of my mantras is a is a quote. Um, um, I believe it's Nandini Krishnamurti, but it's 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 no measure of health to adjust to a profoundly sick society. Um, and I often have to remind myself of that, that when you feel really alone um, and like you're going against the grain in a really big way, um, you know, you're, you're sort of keeping your soul and your spirit intact in a way that will ultimately um, make you feel better about who you are and how you're making your way through the world. And, you know, I've often felt as one of the only people of color in politics in the state, do I do I change who I am? Do I not say this? Do I say it this way? You know, do I, people might tell you, don't play that card, do this, say that. And the more authentic you can stay to yourself um, and surround yourself with people who will help you do that, um, you know, the more you'll, you'll feel good win or lose in, a, in an election or in what you're doing. You know, if you try and fail, but you kept your integrity and you were true to yourself, um, that's, you know, certainly a heck of a lot better than changing who you are and also losing, <laughs> um, you know, but even feels better, I think, than changing who you are and getting somewhere because then you're having to leave a big part of who you are behind um, every time you walk into that space or take on that role. Um, and so, you know, I felt that there have been setbacks. I've had to work more slowly through, you know, sort of my approach to things. I have middle schoolers and, and elementary schoolers who are always asking, are you going to be president? And, you know, um, what I feel like is it's just really nice to be your authentic self and still be able to lead and engage in policy work and politics. And, you know, more than most places I can think of, um, Vermont still does let me do that. And it's a really special place to be able to interact in many ways, one-on-one -on -one or in small groups with folks and, and work meaningfully and authentically to solve problems. So, you know, no matter how many people tell me to go back where I came from, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I love this state and um, I love all of the opportunity that it's given me and the ability to continue to be myself and move forward. And we're so honored that we have your beautiful self here and that you're exactly where you need to be. Um, and I really, I love that sentiment. It's like, you know, for us white people, we do need to change. <laughs> for everyone else, like you're doing awesome. <laughs> <laughs> who you are I mean that it really is what it is and um so like it was kind of as I was listening to you talk I was like well okay that's that pretty much sums it up like, <laughs> we need to change and we need to support all of our people of color and indigenous and black people in this country and across the world to be the beautiful people they are yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of uh great lessons in understanding how indigenous folks have have aligned with you know environmental protection and stewarded the land. There's great lessons in how black folks continue to save our democracy, you know, really to the benefit of a lot of other folks um, that are not them. Um, and, you know, we have so many people, black and brown, who continue to love this country, just waiting for this country to love them back. Um, yes. You know, and we'll continue to be here to do that. And, uh, you know, we, we appreciate that more white folks are starting to see how much we love this country and how hard we're trying to save its soul. Absolutely. That's very well put. 
Um, so, Keisha, you are running for state Senate here in Chittenden County. Right. And um, as we said earlier, if you're elected, you will be the first woman of color to serve here in Vermont yeah. um, and the youngest woman to serve, period. That's right. Yeah. I want to pass that tiara on very soon. So, um, you know, please, young women, come see me. You know, I think when we talk about representation, just looking at women in office, um, you know, we could note that less than, you know, about one and a half percent of all elected officials in the whole country are women under the age of 35. It's a very, very small percentage of elected officials. And yet, guess who makes it to Congress and likes to make the most laws about women under the age of 35, right? All the other men who started in politics very young. So, yes, you know, you, you have to get in this pipeline um, and, and lead because otherwise laws will be made on your backs continuously. And that's what we're seeing with changes that are so overdue in Congress and in Washington and in our legislatures um, so that, you know, we have people who have intrinsic experiences that they bring to the table so folks don't get left behind. Run for office, everyone. Yes, please, <laughs> please. <laughs> um, how, like, do you want to speak any more to, to your campaign right now mm -hmm. and how, you know, if elected, like how you want to amplify your voice um, to be changed within everything yeah. we've talked about today? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have this awesome young dynamic team working with me, a lot of college students, high school students clamoring for something to do. And my goal right now is to just to keep them safe and, you know, try not to let them run around the neighborhood um, doing too much. But I just love having that energy and that capacity. Um, people are so hungry for change and to be a part of something. Um, so I love running, you know, I, I hope I'm successful <laughs> this time. But the really nice part is just storytelling and engaging, hearing from other folks what's really on their minds, what is, um, you know, how they want to see the state move forward. I have the benefit of having spent eight years in the legislature, kind of becoming someone who can navigate the, the building pretty nimbly, because um, it was my entire 20s, and you just absorb everything like a sponge. And now being back in my 30s, having had a break, um, having gone to, you know, get my master's degree and having some new ideas and new ways of looking at things. I think that's a really rare combination. And I just hope people see and appreciate that and know that I'll be working for the whole state as well. Um, you know, you, many of your folks in your audience are in the Mad River Valley, which I love. I've served on some boards in the Mad River Valley. And um, I've always just said, you know, if you're going to represent Chittenden County, you kind of have a target on your back, right? Everybody thinks you have all the resources and you have what you need. And so it becomes really incumbent upon you to understand what the rest of the state needs, because you're only going to get what you need in Chittenden County if you can also help the rest of the state and recognize that the success of all of Vermont means the success of Chittenden County as well. Um, and so, you know, at having traveled to every corner of the state and all, all along most of the back roads and, you know, just loving the whole state, um, you know, I'm ready to be that champion for all of Vermont um, because that's the way that any of our counties move forward and any of our institutions is if we all move forward together. Absolutely. That's um, wise words for how, you know, you want to serve in the Senate, but also for how we can all be living right now and working towards yes. is <laughs> together. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's still yeah. such a hallmark of how we try to live in Vermont. And I don't want us to lose that. So absolutely. Well, Keisha, it's been just an honor having you here again. Right. Is there anything you feel like you'd like to 
add in before we wind down? I know we've covered a lot. Just, you know, just appreciation for you, Anna. I mean, this is the this is the second time, well, maybe third time if you count both of these segments that I've been on your show. Um, and just the ability to have far ranging, authentic, complex conversations. It's so important right now. So I wanna thank you for having me on. Um, I wanna thank the people who are still listening, you know, because these are really heavy topics. And, yeah. um, you know, some of us privilege sometimes means you don't have the ability to sort of turn away from this conversation. And for those who have the privilege to kind of ignore this conversation, but stuck with it, thank you. You know, it really does make a difference to stay curious and um, to understand how other people are walking through the world. So I just have deep appreciation for you and your audience. Well, thank you so much for honoring me with your voice, your knowledge, your time. Um, yeah, we've worked really hard on this episode together and um, I'm just so grateful that, that you were able to do so. And I'm, yeah very honored to know you and to have you on here whenever you want to come on <laughs> on my end at any time you have other angles that you want to get on this conversation there are some great leaders in the state doing this work and I'd be happy thank to. you I will definitely take you up on that um, so just thank you everyone for listening today to this two-part episode with Keisha Ram if you would like to learn more about her you can go to her website which is K-E-S-H-A-R-A-M.com. Um, do, <laughs> do not forget to vote um, in November. And um, in August, I, you know, yes. no matter who you vote for, you don't even, you know, I'm not on some of your ballots and you don't have to vote for me anyway, but August 11th is the state primary. And for many elections, that will probably decide a lot of what happens in November because, you know, we're, um, we tend to all pull in one direction as a state from time to time when the situation is dire. Um, and this is one of those years. So the Democratic ballot is going to determine a lot. Um, yes. So, you know, either way, which, whichever ballot you pick up in August, you're, you can pick up whichever one you feel like. Um, but vote in August because, you know, every election is an opportunity to determine who your voice will be. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, definitely vote for your heart and vote for our country. Um, yeah. Lives depend on it right now. Lives depend on our vote. And um, yeah, I'm going to be providing a list of the resources that you shared with us today. And as always, to our listeners, if you have any questions about the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me, Anna at standupresources.com. I'm your host, Anna Nasset. Thank you so much for being with us today on The Mend. Goodbye.